we're uh, in the middle of a series uh, called Love Where You Live. Uh, and it's, and it's, uh, it's sort of this theme that we're going to explore in, uh, during the summer that will hopefully help all of us to be a little more um, aligned with God when it comes to neighboring and sort of, you know, it's meant to sort of disrupt, disrupt some of our normal patterns that we fall into. So today's message is called Basic Tribalism. Like you probably, you know, note the, the play on words that, you know, we call tribe and everything. What's basic tribalism? So um, I, will, I will illustrate in, in a minute, but the back this the text is going to be from Luke 10, and it's basically this classic story about the Good Samaritan. Uh, and what I'm hoping to do is to shed more light into the whole Good, good Samaritan parable and, and story in a way that disrupts the way we do neighboring. The backstory is this. There was an expert of the law. You know, there were crowds following Jesus. He would teach everywhere. And he basically asks Jesus about the essence of the law, right? Um, and the essence of the law, just for you to know, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's, it's, this, it's this Jewish custom and tradition in, to follow the Torah, which is the f- first five books of, books of the Bible, and sort of poke it and extract wisdom for life. That's essentially what this whole conversation is about, is is this very curious, inquisitive, leaning in, how does God want us to live type thing, right? So the expert of the law, who is, you know, obviously knows a lot about this, he's asking Jesus, okay, what is the essence of the law? Tell us the essence of the wisdom to live life on earth, and what does God say to us, and how should we be? So he answers this in Luke 10, 27. Love, God your, uh, love the, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so this is, you know, the, the, the expert saying, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So, of course, this is one of those things where you, when you have a culture where people are in the same in the same vein about things, right? So you recite these things that are essentials. So there, it's, it's this transaction of between the two people saying, this is, this is the essence, right? Yes, this is the essence. And then it says there's a little caveat. It says, but, and, and I, wa- I wonder wh- how, how did Luke, who is the author of this book, know this? And I'm suspecting Jesus told him. It goes, but he, because he talks about motivation. What was this guy thinking, right? How would he know? But he wanted to justify himself, the expert of the law. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? And that is the crux of the matter. Who is my neighbor? And this is a loaded question. A loaded question. And Jesus knew this. So he answers with an extreme example of something that sort of disrupts the way this guy thinks. The, the, the way he has interpreted scripture for, for all of his life and probably generations before him, people that taught him, right? Before I tell you exactly what Jesus does and what he says, and this is of course the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan, is I'm going to define basic tribalism for you, right? Basic tribalism, is the fact that we know as human beings that our, there's safety in, our, in, in numbers, right? There's, our strength is in numbers. To, to illustrate, and this, this is how we, you know, we're gathered in a place 
where a normal, a normal sort of uh, living being wouldn't be gathered in a theater, looking at projectors, sitting on seats, looking at iPhones, while distracted from the sermon, all those things. Why is that? We collaborate to, to create order out of chaos. Right? If you throw a human, if you throw, if you throw like any one of us separately into this uninhabited in an uninhabited place, let's say Texas, right the spot, and there's nothing else, we will probably struggle to survive. You throw in a family or a clan in, into the same place, we'll have a city a few generations later. You see the difference there? That's basic tribalism. It's one of the things that is hardwired into us to collaborate, right? Because we don't have we, you know, we don't have claws and we can't just kill things, right, on our own. But we can collaborate and create something new, right? Now, what is, what is, how does that display itself in modern life? Well, if you, when, when you meet somebody, you find something in common first. I mean, that's what small talk is for, right? What do you like? What do you like? Who are, how are you? What do you prefer? You know, sports teams, music. Where'd you grow up? Right, and the, the 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 moment you find something in common, you light up, or the other person lights up. I was on the phone with somebody who was talking. It was like a business call, and the guy was from Wisconsin. And and, and the first thing I said is, "Do you know where Horicon is?" Because that's where my wife was grew up. And he was like, "Absolutely!" And there's an immediate connection. Of course, there's no real connection, right? But the primal tribalism kicks in, and we go, "Yes, we have a connection point. We have a commonality, right?" So if you're a primitive, if you're a primitive tri tribe going thousands of years before, what do you look for? Who, is my, who are we and who are they? The we will collaborate to build a better, a better world and a, and a more safe world. The they, they're a threat, right? So you gather in tribal connections and you develop stories and commonalities and things like that. So in modern life, you can have the economic elites band together, right? Like if you're social econo socially economically in the same sp spot, you gravitate towards each other. That's just normal. I'm not saying that ba that's bad. It's just normal. When you go to the socioeconomic bottom of the rung, there's gangs, right? There's all kinds of studies about gangs and how they, how gangs come together because of belonging and safety and identity. And they don't do, do themselves much favors because you're basically replicating life patterns that keep them in poverty and violence and death and danger, right? But it's so, it's so tribal, that's that, um, that way of doing it. All the way, all the way to just normal stuff, like you're, if you're a sports fan, all of a sudden you're like best friends with somebody because you cheer for the same team. You don't even know how to play the, the, the game, right? Like think about it, right? But there's such passion and such connection. So this is just absolutely normal. I'll tell you a, a few stories, and I, I, the reason I'm telling you these stories is because for you to maybe find and recognize patterns of basic tribalism in your life, right? You know, when I was a kid, I moved uh, uh, around a lot, right? So I would be like this person who doesn't fit in anywhere, right? So early on, I was 14 years old. There was another move. This is like my fourth move or something like that. And I show up. I grew up in Africa. I look Latino, and I'm also in Africa, like jungle boy, right? Super, super dark-skinned. And they throw me, life throws me into a, into a high school in Russia, in Moscow. I'll show you a picture. 
Who is the different guy in this picture? <laughs> right? Look at that guy. I look Pakistani or something, you know, like, like really, like there was literally not one person in my school who looked like that. Not one. I was the only one, right? And, um, and it was interesting because it's very, it, it, it's, it's hard, right? So you're trying to find, do you belong here? You know, are they going to accept you and stuff like that? And it was actually a mixed experience. Like in some aspects, I was super fortunate because people took to me my, at least, at least my class, they, they, I was like the mascot. So I don't know if that's a good thing, but it was like, oh, adorable. Until you start dating a girl and people go, really, him? You know? Um, I went to college a few years later, and uh, the college was, it was like half people from the third world and half locals, and the people who were locals were really like career-oriented and super square, and the people from the third world were like really like rebels, and I identified with those guys. So the tribalism developed there. I was like, oh, if you're like this career person, I don't, I don't want anything to do with you, right? So it was like this, this, this basic tribalism of my part. You go to class, they go to class, we go to the cafeteria and discuss politics and smoke and drink coffee, you know, that's what we did. Um, what I'm telling you is that there's, everybody is, has this basic tribalism thing going on, all of us. And there's not all, it's not all wrong, this is just how we're wired. Um, there's this research out of K uh, uh, Kansas University that basically finds that desire of for, it's called desire for similarity. That's sort of the definition that they use. Um, and it increases liking. And I'll tell you why, so I'll give you, I'll put some stuff on there. This is, this is research. These are dimension, the dim, dimensionality that describes its basic tribalism. Consensual validation. People who share our attitudes make us feel more confident in our attitudes, right? So you're looking for what? Affirmation, right? Consensual validation. So if you, if you like that sports team, you'll probably confirm that my preferences are valid, right? Uh, cognitive evaluation. Our brain wants to categorize the person based on first impressions, right? This is hardwired. That's why if you see somebody who is not like you, you will put him in a box whether you like it or not, right? Um, that's why if, um, if, 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 uh, if a police officer who has power stops you for a traffic sort of infraction or something like that, if you drive a certain car and you look a certain way, they will feel either safer or not safer. They will put you in the backs, and you don't, you, you know, who, who here has experienced something like that, right? And it's not just ethnic, it's a combination of things. It's, it's this instant evaluation of who you are, right? I've had, uh, you know, one cop uh, stopped me at a, because uh, I was speeding, I was really speeding, I wasn't paying attention, I was listening to like loud music. And, 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 and the guy like literally was, became very jumpy because I reached for my registration. And, I'm like, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, you just asked me for the registration. He goes, be more careful. I'm like, dude, it's the middle of the day, it's Mopac. Why, why are you responding to me that way? And I think it's because of this, cognitive, cognitive evaluation. Maybe I look Latino, I don't know if I was wearing something weird. But you, my, our brain wants to categorize the other person quickly, it's just hardwired, it's what it is, right? I'm not saying it's good or bad, it just is. Certainty of being liked. Someone who is like you will like us, right? You want to be accepted. Fun interactions, that's another one, right? Someone who is like us will offer enjoyable interactions. 
So if you are talking to somebody, you find something you enjoy, and then you can talk about the things you enjoy together. This makes sense, right? Self-expansion opportunities, gaining knowledge and experiences by spending time with someone like you, right? So it's this idea that you're essentially also finding opportunities for yourself in the collective. Does that make sense? So the reason I tell you this brainy sort of, you know, stuff, boring stuff, um, is that it, this is hardwired into us, and it's not good or bad, it just is. And then there's God's law, the Torah. The Torah is applied truth for human flourishing. This is how we transcend the hardwired. This is how we go, grow beyond being just social beings and being children of God. So then Jesus introduces this extreme story of the other, of the person who you wouldn't align with naturally, right? Who would sort of break the mold of, of, of tribalism, the Good Samaritan. So before I read you the scriptures, I, I want to give you a bit of a backstory about that. Because you go, well, Good Samaritans, what's the, what's the point of Good Samaritan? Well, the, Samarit you, the, the Jews didn't like Samaritans. I get it, right? Oh, no, it's worse than that. It's not like, it's not like we are where you're like super heavy into politics and you're a Democrat, for example. And anybody who's a conservative, you go, seriously? You know, what is wrong with you? Or vice versa, right? Um, it's, it's that multiplied by 100, and the only thing I can compare it with, uh, not, if, if you don't follow this, you might not get this example, but I do in the sense because I, was, I, w I went to college with two Palestinians. So if you're in the, in the dorm room, in the small dorm room with, with two Palestinians, one of them it was called Mohammed and the other one's called Jesus. I, I, I can't make this stuff up. Isa, Isa is Jesus. Mohammed and Isa, two Palestinians. So for four years, I learned about the struggle of the Palestinian people. And you look, you, if you track that conflict, it's probably the, the, one of the oldest ongoing conflicts in history, right? <laughs> it's like, this is, this is an impossible conflict. It's an, there's no way out. Like, the more you dig into it, the more you, you put, pull at threads and you go, oh my gosh, the animosity goes, it has so many layers. And it's like, how can that even be a result? So it's that level of animosity that the Samaritans had with the Jews. And it goes back not hundreds of years, but thousands of years. So here's the backstory: Jacob in the Bible has 12 sons, right? One of them was Joseph. Remember Joseph and his, his technicolor coat? Uh, he was despised by his other brothers, so they sold him into slavery. He, it's an amazing, amazing story of overcoming. And he then saves the whole family, Joseph does, right? So Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that, I mean to ask. Is it Manasseh? Manasseh? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh become essentially two tribes, right? Two groups of people. And when Israel eventually inherits the, the promised land after it's taken out from slavery by Moses, wandering for a generation in the, pro, uh, in the, in the desert and taking the promised land, Manasseh and Ephraim t uh, t get a territory. So the, 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 the kids of the kids of the kids, right? They get a territory and that territory eventually becomes Samaria. So think about that. Th think about the layers of animosity, right? Like the, the father of the father of the father, 
didn't, was not liked by his brothers. <laughs> and it's sort of passed down in layers and layers and layers from generation to generation. It gets worse. So Samaria becomes the capital of what becomes the North Kingdom and the, and the South, the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. Uh, Samaria becomes the, the capital of the Northern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom is then invaded by Assyria. They take all of, most of those people into slavery, repopulate all of that Northern Kingdom part. Uh, with their own people, it's who intermarry with the locals, and they basically create this this very specific culture that is sort of watered down Judaism. Then the southern kingdom also gets invaded, also gets enslaved. But and the people who are descendants of the southern kingdom look at the people who are the descendants of the of the northern kingdom, Samaria, as the people who just don't get it. Right, so they worship, supposedly worship the same God, but they worship in the wrong way and all that. Jesus actually alludes to that in the story with the Samaritan woman, by the well, if you read that story. So the animosity is thousands of years old, thousands of years old. And how it displays itself is complete and utter isolation. Like, I'm not, not only going to speak to you, I'm not going to touch you, and as a matter of fact, in the story that you're about to read, if I'm walking down the street and I see a Samaritan and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite, I will literally cross the street to not intersect with you. It gets even worse. If I'm walking and, you know, there's no airplanes, there's no, you know, there's no modern transportation, so people, you know, take a donkey or something or walk places. They will walk around Samaria, take the long way, just to avoid contact with these people. I mean, that's intense stuff, right? If you think about it. That's intense stuff. We don't know this level of intensity in America. It's a very egalitarian society, even though we're fragmented and we fight all the time. It is egalitarian compared to this. This is intense stuff. Does that make sense? So then Jesus tells the story and he flips the script. Let's read it together. Luke 10, verses 30 to 37. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of, the cl of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by, by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by one on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three things do you think which of these three do you think was, a neighbor, was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do you see the extra layers there when you read the story now that you know there's thousands of years of animosity? What is Jesus trying to do here? He's disrupting our hardwired basic tribalism and offering something that can be life-changing to the audience then and to the audience now, to us, right? What is he trying to do? He's trying to explain that in the Torah, the law, 
the, the, the blueprint for our flourishing. God is asking us to transcend something that is hardwired into us for our own benefit. So if we read, it this, uh, read the story and we go, and we merely leave it as, okay, so you, you, need to have compa- you need to be compassionate, you need to be more unifying, and you need to just love people, and people who are in trouble reach out and take care of them. There's so much more to that story for our benefit if, you want, if we want to really see it there, right? Here's the, here's the point that Jesus is making. First of all, if you're an expert, you will know what is written. It's a good starting point, right? To know what is written. If you read your Bible, you know what is written. If you have a habit of having a quiet time and reading scriptures, then you know where the books of the Bible are, what the flow is, what the context is, what the general sort of the commandments are. All of those things are good to have. It's a good start, but it's not enough. See, the experts will know what is written. The godly will do what is written. And that's where the transformation begins. That's why Jesus tells the story that, is, that really shakes it, right? It, it sort of disrupts this pattern of tribalism. And he says, go and do likewise. See, the Samaritan was different from the expert because he did something different from the, from the expert. The doing is key here. I want to illustrate to you how this can change your life forever. And it has changed mine, and it, I hope it continues to change mine as well. I have, you know, I had my life and my pattern and, and my sort of journey. You have yours. Every, every story in this room is rich with opportunity. I grew up in the third world. I traveled a lot. I saw a lot of poverty. I was poor, but not until I met Jesus that I start thinking of the poor and remembering the poor. You know, I, I grew up in one of the poorest countries on the planet, Mozambique, and I never set foot in the slums until I, I became a Christian. Why? It's because Jesus awoken in me something that is beyond basic tribalism. I didn't even acknowledge the existence or the pains or the journey of those people who are literally my neighbors, right? I didn't visit an orphanage until I became a Christian. I didn't go into the ghetto. I lived in Philadelphia. I didn't go into the ghettos of Philadelphia until, until I was a Christian. And I went because I was a Christian. I didn't go into the slums of Tijuana, I, I started making a list, you know, Tijuana, Guatemala, San Pedro Sula, Mexico City, Rio de Janeiro, Santiago, Maputo. I had a presence there and I, and I found myself there working and serving the poor only, only because of Jesus. That's not my natural state. That is transcending basic tribalism and it changes everything, remembering, remembering the poor. I did not sacrifice for people that were other than me until I became a Christian. One of my favorite stories and life experiences, you know, early on, and I've told this story to, to many of you many times over, but it's, you know, when I became a Christian, I lived, I was a single guy, I was 26 years old, uh, and I was sort of in show business, I, so I had my, my tribe, my basic tribe, right? And then because I became a Christian, I started interacting with people who were completely different from me 
completely different from me. We read a couple of, uh, last Sunday when we, when we were studying Pentecost on how people expanded their horizons, started sharing everything with people that were completely different from them. And that started the Jesus Revolution. So that's what happened to, with me. I, I was just in a different mode because of Jesus just changed, changed my heart. You know, and, and I ended up in, in the first year of my Christianity, I ended up helping a mafia member, heavyweight wrestler, become a Christian. And he was like literally the muscle of the mafia, right? And I moved him into my apartment because he didn't have a place to stay, right? So it's this long-haired singer guy, you know, very thin. I was thinner than I am now. I'm, le- you know, I have more muscle now. Uh, <laughs> and some other stuff. Uh, and this Shrek-like looking guy, like super dangerous looking. And then, so I started, helped him study the Bible. He moved in and we were like BFFs, like completely BFFs. And this guy, by the way, when he first came to church, not only did he, did he not align with me, he hated me and said that to my face. Hated me. One of the first sparks to, for him to study the Bible is, a, is he was cornered me in, where they're cheering for a, for a fellow wrestler of, of his who was a Christian, and he, was, he found me there, and he was so irritated by, by me that he cornered me in, in, the sort of in the hallway. We were alone, and he was yelling at me, you know, like, why are you wearing this? He was just sort of not off, right? He had anger issues, mafia anger issues come together usually. And he was like, are you even a real man? You have long hair, blah, 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 like things, foolish things like that. And I'm like, are you a real man? And he, I thought he was going to kill me, and, and he goes, what? And I said, if you're a real man, you'll follow Jesus. And that's how he started studying the Bible. And um, uh, uh, after we mo- uh, he moved in, uh, somebody brought this guy over. His name is Fred. And Fred was a heroin addict who couldn't get off. And he already had several clinical deaths and stuff like that. And it's one of those guys, you know, that you see he shaves his head and he has tattoos all over his body, like a very particular look, let's put it that way, right? And we were, so it's the singer and the mafia guy studied the Bible with the heroin guy. And we, and we realized that he, he, we probably won't be able to help him become a Christian until he starts using heroin. And the only way for him to stop using heroin is to be removed from the, from the environment he's in because everybody's calling him and his friends is, and he's weak. So he's like, we'll just move you into our apartment. So we're seeing this guy going through withdrawal in the kitchen, shaking. We're holding his hand. We're, we're helping this guy physically, spiritually, emotionally. And he gets off heroin, and he becomes a Christian. He gets baptized. And then he has a friend. His name was Oleg. Looked exactly the same. I listened to horrible, horrible, like really like heavy metal, not heavy metal, but like extreme, loud rock and roll music. Uh, I think it was like a death, death rock, I think, something like that. And they listened to it really loud. And I'm a pop guy. I'm like, I can't even, you know. It's a one-bedroom apartment. The four of us was living together. Four people, right? Complete. We wouldn't be caught dead talking to each other before Christ. And we lived together. And we prayed together. It's like a first, first century experience, right? Acts 2. It's transformative. I'll never forget it. I can't unlearn that as a human being. Um, a few years, uh, many years later, jump, jump forward, we were in Los Angeles. Deb and I buy a house, beautiful house, by the way, we lost it because we came here. Uh, had to sell it, I'm still mourning. Uh, 
And uh, so we, we're moving in, and Deb is the most hospitable person. If you get to know Deb, I've learned so much of compassion and hospitality from her. I'm not naturally that way. So Deb goes, okay, we're going to have a barbecue, and we're going to ha- welcome everyone. So we basically start going, uh, we knock on doors. You know, our immediate, basically like up and down our street, maybe three or four or five houses in each direction. We just knock on door. Hey, we just moved in the neighborhood. We're having a barbecue on Saturday. This time, would you come? We'd love to have you, get to know you, blah, blah, blah. So, and we printed out these invites, right, so that people remember. And we go with our kids, and we, we knock on doors. And then the very last invite, we had one left. It was like sort of a, a little bit of an awkward place because it was behind our house, right? And we're like, oh, let's just, we have one more. Let's go knock on that door. So we knock on the door. We invite them. And there's this couple. Um, they're Chinese, ethnically Chinese, both of them. Older couple. Uh, his name is Bucky. Kind of an interesting name for a Chinese older guy, Bucky, and Mamie. And, uh, and we're like, this is our last invite. L- love to have you. And in my head, and this is basic tribalism. I just want you to recognize this stuff. I go, I have nothing in common with these people. Like, they're Chinese. I'm from all over the place. They're older. I'm, at the time, younger. I don't know even what to, I, I don't think to, to talk about with these people. But we reach out. Well, guess what? They show up, and a lot of people actually showed up. We had a barbecue. By the way, great idea for summer is to just be intentional and being hospitable with people. And we had a great time. You had a pool in the back, and everybody came. A lot of people came. It was fun. And then the very last people who, to leave the house were Bucky and Mamie. And, and we're like, hey, by the way, we, we'll go to this great church. You know, will you come? And, uh, and in my mind, again, I have nothing in common with these people. I don't have animosity, but I, have, I don't even know how to start connecting with these people. But I'll invite them to church anyway. And they came. And they came the very next Sunday. And then a few months later, Bucky gets baptized. A few months after that, Miami gets baptized. I want to show you a picture. There they are. And see, things like that don't happen unless you transcend basic tribalism. To this day, my life is enriched in amazing ways because most of, most of the people that, 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 I've, that are just friends who have offered me love and, love and service and, and wisdom are people who are un, completely unlike me. And that's why they can add value to my life in amazing ways. Most of my mentors, now I'm very intentional. So once you, ch- once you learn that, it changes the way you think. You don't gravitate towards what you know. You gravitate towards what you don't know. Who are the best people f- to mentor you in whatever it is that you need mentoring in? People who don't have your experiences. People who know more than you do. People that have experiences that you didn't have. Right? All of my mentors, people that, are, that I really invest in and love and appreciate and express gratitude to are people that in, in the flesh, quote unquote, would not be in my sphere of social interactions. Not even a little bit, right? Um, So let me ask you this. If Jesus said to you, go and do likewise, what would that look like for you? 
if you think about basic tribalism like that. How would help, you know, I'll give you some just food for thought. How would helping someone become a Christian change you? Not just change them, but change you. Going out of your way, going the extra mile. You know it's how it's hard, it's hard aching to help somebody become a Christian because you never know if you're going to A, be rejected from the get-go, B, be heartbroken in, in the, when people engage and then they just don't want to do the hard things because following Jesus is not easy. Right? But you do it because you are transcendent, transcending basic, basic tribalism. You're, you're doing likewise like Jesus is telling you to do. In this church, and this is something that I want to sort of keep bringing back, the way people become members of the church is one-on-one -on -one Bible studies with other members of this church. Yeah, we have a disco discovery class every once in a while, but that's not the, the journey. The journey is your life, life on life, discipleship. We meet together. I share about my life, about my pains, about my sins. You share about yours. We open the Bible, and I help you in your journey, like I was helped in my journey. That is, that is how we do it in this church, right? And it's a wonderful thing, and it's a hard thing. It's very different from consumer uh, churchianity. Well, what do you, how, do you, how do you become a member? Well, you just sign up on this, you know, you go on the website. <laughs> you just, you know, you say I'm a member. You start tithing. No, no, no. You journey, you connect your life with somebody else's life. And you transcend sort of tribalism. And you get in uncomfortable conversations with each other for the sake of Jesus. And you are transformed in the process. Some of the best and deepest relationships you'll ever had are the people that you studied the Bible with. I promise you. And if you're not studying the Bible with someone or inviting somebody to study the Bible or explore Jesus, you're missing out. You're missing out. It's absolutely transformative. Here's another thing. Start an unlikely friendship. Right? Who is the, you know, who is the heavyweight Greco-Roman wrestler in your life that you're not hanging out with? Who is that person? And you know what? Sometimes, this is embarrassing, sometimes it's a person in this church. In this church. You'll go, ah, I don't know if I can relate to you. You're being basic. You are. Okay? Invest in your weird neighbor. Who is your weird neighbor? And what does that mean? Weird neighbor physically, in the workspace, in, in, the, in this church. Go the extra mile. That's one of the essences of the story. It's like, this guy was not just, hey, you know, I'm good. You know, I'll transcend myself. I'll, I'll bandage. No, no, no. He takes him, puts him on a donkey, takes him to the inn, feeds him. Gives extra money to the innkeeper. I'll give you more when I come back. I mean, that's extra mile. That changes the person, but it also changes you. What does the extra mile look for you, specifically, in your case, right? Here's another way to, to transcend basic tribalism. Go on a mission trip. Most people that go, don't go on a mission trip, two things. A, you're missing out. Two, you don't go because it's uncomfortable and it's hard and it's painful. And it's expensive as well. Go on a mission trip. Leave the country. Get perspective. It will change you. It's not a vacation. 
I get it. And we would rather spend money on vacation, but go on a mission trip. It will change you. It will enrich you. It will transform you. Here's another way. Ask for help. You know how uncomfortable people are asking for help? It's crazy. Even in the church. We would rather sink than ask for help. The pride is incredible. Ask for help. And when you ask for help, ask from someone who can actually offer you help. Don't ask tribally. Meaning, you know, if I'm a 25-year-old single guy and I want to get married and I'm frustrated with relationships, I shouldn't be asking for help from a 25-year-old single guy who wants to get married and has trouble with relationships. I ask for help from a married guy who's been married for 20 years and has an amazing marriage. But we don't do that, do we? We do not. If I'm broke and financially unstable, I don't want to ask help from another broke, financially unstable person. I want to ask for help for somebody who has their finances right. If I don't have a career figured out and I don't, I don't know what my calling is, I don't ask for other people who are equally lost. I ask from somebody who has done it well and it's an inspiration to me. Does that make sense? The list goes on and on. You can probably continue projecting that, right? If I'm a teenager, all I want to do is hang out with teenagers. And that's wonderful to a degree because somebody in the same season of life, in the same state you are, you're not gonna, it's not going to see around corners, are they? They're not. They're not going to see around corners. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to give you this, this really funny example. And this is, unfortunately, an, um, an illustration of Christianity and, and where it is. We, uh, this is a few years ago. It's probably seven or eight years ago. Uh, we, um, there, was a, there, <laughs> there was a worship conference in Austin, like inter-church, whatever, worship conference, and somebody was hosting it. And I, we, a bunch of us went, you know, I was like, hey, let's go. Let's, we can learn something. And it was, it was actually wonderful and equipping, but there was something there that really struck me. And that's something it was that it was probably, I don't know, four or five hundred people in the, in the sort of the main area worshiping together. And there, there were breakouts, just like with any conference. And if you look around the room, 98% of people in that room in the worship conference were white. And they were like clones of each other. Not only were they white, they were like between 20 and 30, all skinny jeans, all with some, you know, obscure tat, you know, with, in Hebrew. You know, same haircuts, you know, the high leather boots, you know, like the lace-up boots, you know. Like, it was just creepy, right? It's just creepy. That's basic tribalism. That's basic tribalism, right? Um, if you go to most churches, you will see the same thing as a normal thing. That's why you have all black churches, all Latino churches, all Korean churches, all, you know, white churches, obviously. Now... Take a look around the room right now. What do you see? It's a small group. We're not a big deal. But what do you see? You see diversity. You see racial. You see age diversity, stage in, st season and stage in life, socioeconomic diversity. In this small little group, why? Ask yourself. And this is something that I want you to even treasure about our own community. 
because this is our inheritance. We don't even know why. People ask, man, I was like people, I've, I've had people speak here who I invite from other spaces. They're like, well, Rick, what are you, what are you doing? So you're so diverse. And I, I don't have an answer. And the answer is, I don't know. We're just, you know, disciples. This is how we roll. This is the DNA of this community. It's really remarkable because you don't even have to try. This is who you are. Isn't that cool? But in even, even in our fellowship, just I want to challenge you to observe the fellowship after, after church on Sunday. Even in this very diverse community, which I'm really proud of, you will see basic tribalism at the lemonade tree. By age, by, by I know you, by ethnic group, you will see. You will see the gravitational pull of the hardwired us. And, what I, and that's not bad. That's what I'm saying. It's not bad, but it's not all there is. So what I want to challenge you with is observe. Just look around. When you're fellowshipping, where am I going? Where am I who am I gravitating towards in the fellowship? And then look around and go, okay, who is everybody else gravitating towards? And you'll make you laugh. It's really funny, actually. And then make a conscious decision to remember that story of Jesus and him saying, who is the neighbor here? Who's the good neighbor? And he goes, well, the one who had compassion. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Right? So let me uh, break down sort of this, this, the research that I that initially uh, showed you and, and see if we can see through what is the hardware and how we can go beyond the hardware. So let's go. Um, Consensual validation, right? Consensual validation. You remember what that was? So how you can transcend that. Discover the joy of being enlightened by someone with a very different perspective. Consensual validation is our desire for people to agree with us. So if you have one worldview, right? And it could be about anything. It could be about politics. If you are like, a, like, you know, like an, an intense Democrat, go talk to a conservative and say, hey, I'm an intense Democrat, you're an intense conservative. Can, we, can I ask you some questions about why you're an intense conservative? You know what's going to happen? You're going to be enlightened, and vice versa. People will tell you things that you have no idea about because, what, who, because why? Because you're tribal, because you hang out with the people that want to consolidate. You want to be, valid, to be validated, and they want to be validated, so they start doing what? Groupthink. It's not helping you, consensual validation. But you can discover the joy of being enlightened by someone with a different perspective. Cognitive evaluation, which basically means you want to put somebody in a box, this is your hardwiring stuff, right? But if you, instead of making assumptions, you're trying to discover somebody else's world, that's going to enrich them and it's going to enrich you. Certainly of being liked, that's another thing that we really want to, right? We want to be liked. But explore, explore being liked by someone unlikely to like you, that's cool, you know? When the guy who hated me in the hallway of the, of, of the, of the Greco-Roman competition loves me as a brother to this day, that's amazing stuff. Okay, fun interactions. Be surprised that the new fun can, th that new fun can come from more fun, can become more fun, right? So the things that you, what do you do for fun? You have a list of things that you do for fun. And every once in a while, it really helps to say, hey, how do you have fun? Let's have fun like you have fun. And you go, wow, that was actually fun. I didn't expect that. Thank you. 
Self-expansion opportunities. This is the best, right? If you think that hanging out with people like you will give you self-expansion opportunities, you are wrong. The only thing that expands you is things that are other than what you're used to. That's the only thing that actually expands you, you know? So if you network, don't network with people in your, in your space. Network with people that are above your space in how you consider it. That's how you learn. That's how you expand. All right. What is the spirit telling you, if you're actually paying attention to this, obviously? Like, as you listen to this, you listen how we're hardwired. If you see Jesus coming in, with an amazing story that meant so much for the audience because he's, he's, de he's describing counterculturally something that has happened for thousands and thousands of years. And when you see that apply to you when, you're, when Jesus is engaging you and saying, go and do likewise, what is the Spirit telling you? Is Jesus telling you that? <laughs> so as we take communion, here's what I want you to meditate on. That, that call to action, go and do likewise. That call to action by Jesus. Speaking to someone who is an expert in the law. He's a church guy. He's a guy who knows the Bible inside and out, right? Maybe you're that person. When he's saying, transcend what you're used to, go and do likewise, what is he saying to you personally? And the question is, what can I do this week? This week, today perhaps, even maybe in the fellowship that gets me one step closer to how God wants me to operate, which is the essence of the law. Jesus is saying, this is what makes you flourish, that you're missing out on. So as we take this break and we take the bread and the juice, I want to sort of illustrate that same thing in Philippians 2 and 5, from 5 to 8, that describes this is how Jesus represents this in the very essence of who he is. In your relationships with one another have the mindset of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, as you relate to others, think about, think about these relationships through the eyes of Jesus, through the lens of Jesus. And this is, this is how it is. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made a human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God. And he leaves this, this place of divine, infinite joy, goes out of his way, spills his blood and has his flesh torn so that him and us can be transformed. This is what he's calling us to do with one another. That's what the scripture says. Right? Imitate. Go and do likewise. Let's pray together.
and see if they can change us, if this can change us beyond basic tribalism. Mm-hmm.